So it was, it was during my second year of divinity school in my mid-twenties. Uh, someone, two friends of mine at divinity school had invited me to go along with them to worship. So I said, sure, and we drove to a church that lay on the, just outside of New Haven, Connecticut. As we pulled into the parking lot, uh, I realized that this church looked uh, very different from any church I'd seen before. There was no steeple. Uh, it was not uh, any sort of neo-Gothic building like the church that I had grown up in. Uh, it wasn't a meeting house style like this church and like you find so often in Connecticut. No, this was uh, a rectangular box. And walking in uh, and into the sanctuary, I walked into, for the first time in my life, stadium seating in a worship space. Comfortable, foot, uh, comfortable folding chairs rather than pews. And as we walked in, there was loud music uh, from a band coming from out front and some people with their hands raised above their heads. The service went on for quite a while and I, I remember at the, towards the end of the service, uh, they had an altar call. They asked anyone to come forward who wanted to uh, give themselves, commit themselves to Christ, to please walk down forward and the, the worship leaders would pray with them. Now, this was the first time in my life that I had ever been in a space uh, where anyone talked about being born again. I was raised in a congregational church in New England, and up there, I don't think once in my entire youth were the words born again ever uttered uh, from any pulpit or in any other place in that church. And uh, what's interesting is coming down to Houston where I get the sense it's a little different. You know, I didn't realize how divisive this concept could really be until I moved to Ames, Iowa. And shortly after I arrived, one of the things I did was try and reach out to the local, other local leaders, other local ministers. I remember setting up a meeting with the minister of the First Evangelical Free Church of Ames. I think he was a little surprised by my outreach, and I remember sitting down and talking with him. And we had a good conversation, and towards the end I asked him, so what issues in town, you've been in town for more than 20 years, what issues in town do you think are most pressing? What are some things that you think we could work together on? Paused, and uh, he said, well, the most pressing issue in this town is that not enough people have committed themselves to Christ. Now, mind you, this is a city of 58,000 people, 30,000 of whom were students. So 28,000 regular residents in the city of Ames. For the 28,000 residents, there were 55 churches. Uh, I can guarantee that if someone in that town had not committed themselves to Christ, it was not because they had not been asked. <laughs> Later on, I was mentioning this to uh, one of the longtime church members at the Ames UCC Church, uh, a guy named Bill. And Bill all of a sudden, like, his, I, I could tell I had hit a raw nerve and he started to get very angry. And I said, what is it? And he said, I don't... I don't like that minister. And I'm like, why is that? And he said, well, there had been a member of the Ames UCC, someone who had grown up in that church, but uh, I think it was during, uh, after a second marriage, he, he ended up being led to the first evangelical free church and ended up joining that church. And Bill had attended that man's funeral. And he never, forget, he never forgot that minister getting up and saying, oh, the, the proudest moment in that man's life was when he finally became a Christian at age you know, 50-something. And here's Bill just uh, fuming in the pews under the assumption that for the 50 years that he had spent at Ames UCC, he had not been a real Christian. So I know why some people can get a little worked up over this, uh, over this concept that we find here in John 3. By the way, just, uh, just for clarity's sake, 
the NRSV, the, re, the translation uh, that Teddy wrote, read out earlier, uh, translates the famous phrase born again as born from above. Uh, the reality is that the Greek word uh, can be translated in either way, either born again or born from above. Um, but regardless of how you translate it, we are talking, you know, Jesus does seem to be talking about some sort of second birth. So I don't want the, the phraseology of the translation to get in the way of that. But you know, I've got a little secret to share with you. Something you may or may not be happy to hear. Uh, and that is that the, uh, the Congregationalists have a lot to do with uh, inventing this whole concept of being born again. And uh, it might be a bit of a surprise. <laughs> I see some people shaking their heads. I, I, this, is, uh, this is where a little bit of history uh, can be helpful. You see, the, uh, the reformers in England, the early reformers in England back in the 16th and early 17th centuries, uh, when they looked at their churches, uh, they saw churches that were in need of spiritual renewal. They saw a lot of people going through the motions they heard what they thought were a lot of vacuous and useless sermons. Uh, they read their Bibles. They saw some of the conviction of the early followers of Jesus. And they said, is there any way that we can do better in these churches? And as they began to work through their theological systems, uh, what they came up with, one of the phrases that comes up in the 17th century, early 17th century, is this need uh, to have a, uh, a renewed spirit. Um, this is something that uh, someone would ask, is, is, is your spirit been re- regenerated? So these early 17th century writers wrote about this at length, uh, where, again, the first step in this process is being aware of God's law, being aware of right and wrong, then being aware that you're not fulfilling that law, and then hopefully God coming into your heart and giving you this saving faith uh, that they talked about. Um, and then, but here's, here's the interesting thing. There are... There are two things about this process that are, are worth noting. Uh, I was interested to find out that they said, that, what is one sure sign that you don't have saving faith? Uh, the one sure sign, according to these theologians, that you didn't have saving faith is that you had certainty of your uh, being saved. <laughs> so part of this is, you know, if you really had saving faith, you would continually be racked with doubts. It would continually be this struggle. Those people who are just, you know, have blessed assurance clearly are, do not have saving faith, which is one point they came up. The second thing is that this is all part of a very long journey of faith. That at a certain point, you might have this saving faith uh, that comes into your heart, but that by no means sort of concludes uh, the struggle or what you're doing. Uh, if you've ever read uh, parts of John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Again, here was a 17th century English Puritan writing. Uh, there is this moment of saving faith that happens actually relatively near the beginning of the book, and the rest of it are the struggles of what happens in life after that experience. Well, you see, the congregationalists who came over to New England were very interested in this, and not only for a religious reason, but also for a civil reason. So it became very important to figure out who had this saving faith and who didn't. Because if you had it, you were able to be a full member, you could participate in communion, and you could also vote. So they had people actually testify publicly about their experiences so that those who were in the know could say, yes, well done, you can be a, you can be a member. Well, 
after about 30 years, the system uh, ran into problems because, uh, A, not enough people were actually having these professed experiences, and those that were having the professed experiences followed such a well-worn pattern that it actually brought, it, brought to mind, is this person really having the experiences that they have? In other words, there was such this uh, pattern of, like, this is the way you're supposed to give your testimony, and then all of a sudden all the testimonies follow that pattern. It, it makes you wonder whether or not uh, this is really an authentic experience. So by the 1660s, uh, things had begun to loosen up. You could baptize your children even if you didn't have saving faith, even if you weren't a full member. By the 1670s, Solomon Stoddard in Western Massachusetts opened up communion to all people in the church. Uh, under the assumption saying, listen, in the end, we don't know whether anyone has saving faith. There's no way to figure it out. And the sacraments themselves and worship, full experience of worship can be regenerative in and of itself. Well, this is where uh, we run into uh, the beginning of this, the, the, the concept of thing of being born again, coming into full flower. And that's in the middle of the 18th century. Again, as a result largely of congregationalists in New England. Uh, the leading intellectual of this uh, movement was a guy named Jonathan Edwards, a preacher in Northampton, Massachusetts. And for Edwards, he was frustrated that by the, by the mid-18th century, again, there was this lack of spiritual vitality within the churches that he saw. People had become too complacent. And so Edwards emphasized, and his other New Light uh, leaders emphasized, that the key was to have a singular conversion experience. That there has to be one moment where you really feel this divine and supernatural light, according to Edwards, enter into your heart. This was what was necessary. And so Edwards preached about this. They had revivals for the first time. And of course, this was shocking and horrifying to some of the old lights, the more traditional uh, Puritans and Congregationalists in the area. This was such a big deal, it divided the churches all throughout New England between those who insisted on spiritual rebirth in one particular moment and those who said, listen, this is a longer journey that takes more time and I'm highly uh, suspect of your revivals. Well, in New England, uh, it was the revivalists and Jonathan Edwards that won out. They're the ones that became the dominant voice over the next hundred years. But it's interesting to note that in New England, for these Congregationalists, they were, they, they were still good Calvinists, so God was always in control. Now, oftentimes when we think of committing yourself to Christ or being born again in a, in a contemporary context, it's something that you choose to do. You know, have you chosen to commit yourself to Christ? Well, for Calvinists, this is something that God has to choose. So you just have to wait until it happens. You hope it happens. And this led to uh, a very interesting sort of shape of people's spiritual lives. I remember uh, a few years ago doing a project on missionaries to Turkey. And uh, one of the missionaries I studied, Orson Allen, he was writing, a, he, when he wrote to the American board, the Congregational Foreign Missionary Group, when he wrote to the American board, he talked about his conversion experience. So here he is relaying this experience. And he said about how, starting at age eight, uh, he became deeply aware of his own personal sinfulness. And this would start keeping him up, keeping him up at night. From age eight, start keeping him up at night. As he would pray that God would come into his soul. And this went on year after year as he was struggling, trying, hoping that he would have this saving faith. His father was a deacon in the church. Uh, and the, uh, finally, in his, in his teens, some of his friends started to have this experience, and they joined the church. So all of a sudden, now his parents were really despairing. They're like, okay, now our son is like a complete ne'er-do-well. 
He's not a converted person. He's not a full member of the church. And again, Orson writes about how just you know, personally destructive this was. And then finally, he like poured out his heart to his mother about his struggle. And his mother's like, oh, that's good enough. Let's join. <laughs> and then Orson's saying, but that actually wasn't the moment. It was several years later uh, when I really felt the desire to cast myself wholly on God and felt that my heart was transformed. Well, you can see that if this is the defining faith experience for people's lives, uh, and especially for kids, that some people would have an issue with it. And just as the Congregationalists had been the leading proponents of having this whole conversion, born-again thing happening, they were also the leading voices of moving away from it. So if you walk on, your, on the Heritage Walkway, out from the meeting house, uh, down to the parking lot, one of the plaques that you'll run across is one uh, with the name Horace Bushnell on it. Horace Bushnell was a Congregationalist in Hartford, Connecticut, in the middle of the 19th century. And in 1847, he wrote a very famous book called Christian Nurture. Now, when you read Christian Nurture today, you're like, eh, why is that so significant? But when you understand this context, you can see why it was so revolutionary at the time. Bushnell argued that to be a Christian, you did not need to have a conversion experience. And in fact, he argued pretty explicitly against that whole idea being preached in churches. He said at the very beginning of his, of his book, the true idea of Christian education is that the child is to grow up a Christian and never know himself as being otherwise. That the point is to give encouragement and invite the Holy Spirit into a child's life from a very early age onward and that there's no need to create this psychological trauma of someone's sinfulness in the hope that God would then come into their hearts and convert them. Now, as with all new ideas, it took a little while to catch on. But within a generation, Bushnell was someone who was being taught regularly in seminaries across the country uh, and who really did lead the way on moving churches in a new direction. As I was reading through this stuff this past week, having quite a bit of fun doing it, I noticed there's this interesting pattern. See that? There seems to be a pattern of a perception of a need for spiritual renewal and then an insistence on the fact that this can happen. Some people standing up and saying, this must happen. And then other people saying, you know, you've gone too far. We need to change things. And then people coming back and saying, hey, there's a need for this spiritual renewal. There seems to be this back and forth pattern. See that? I can't help but, but, but think about our own country since the 1970s seem to, again, be in this pattern of insisting on being born again, this whole sense of spiritual renewal. And I wonder what relevance this might have for us in the main line at a place like First Congregational Church. Now, I'm certainly not proposing uh, any kind of born-again experience as is commonly understood uh, in many churches around town. Um, I have a fairly optimistic view of human nature, uh, so I don't think that human beings are horrible and hopeless sinners. Um, I am deeply suspect of blood atonement theories and certainly would not make that a central feature of my preaching. Um, but nevertheless, there is this draw in John 3 that we see, and there is this, there is this heart of this experience looking for, searching for, some degree of spiritual renewal. 
some degree of a deeper and more intense spiritual experience to really seek after that. A fascinating thing is in the mainline churches over the last 15 years, you see a lot more emphasis, not so much on a being born again conversion experience, but on renewing the spiritual life of our churches. Spiritual disciplines like, say, walking labyrinths, uh, going on pilgrimages, uh, learning things like centering prayer, other experiences that 50 years ago would not have been present in churches like this are much more common today. There is this lingering desire that maybe we can be better at what it is that we do. And indeed, this is exactly what I think that we are attempting now with some of the initiatives that we're moving forward with uh, here at First Congregational. For instance, um, one of the things we want to do in the next year is continue to expand our justice work in the community to continue to make our voice on justice issues stronger. And it's my hope that in the process of doing that, you can find some sort of spiritual renewal. As you stand with someone on the margins, as you stand with someone who needs an advocate, that is a spiritual moment. That deepens your spiritual life, especially if that's something that grows out of a spiritual commitment. Another thing that we're trying to do is trying to connect more people to direct service opportunities to encourage our mission board to think about themselves not just in the context of giving away money, but trying to engage as many people in direct service as possible. Why? Same kind of thing. How can we renew our spirits serving others? In our Christian education program, trying to be more systematic about our approach to Christian education so that we can lead people through a progression of learning, so that we can become uh, more mature in our theological reflections. What about our small group ministries? This is one of the big things that I hope we can accomplish in this upcoming year, to begin a really vibrant small group ministry. This is an opportunity for you to get together with other people in a covenanting community that's confidential and be able to share about how God is working in your life. Be able to give testimonies about how God has worked in your life, to give your own personal reflections on the biblical text or other texts, maybe to work together to go do some sort of project or something in the community, some way to encourage us and deepen our, encourage us in our spiritual journeys and encourage us uh, to do more. Now, we don't have altar calls here, so I'll resist uh, doing an altar call, and maybe MJ will kick into, uh, what, what's, what's that song that everyone? Just as I am, that's right. See, this, this shows how naive I am about these things. I, I don't think I've ever even heard that song. But I do know that it's often played in uh, altar calls. Um, but in, in, in lieu of an altar call, I do want to still, in the spirit of this text, in the spirit of some of these traditions, uh, to lay before you an invitation. And that is to take this passage, this notion in John 3, <clears throat> about being born in water and the spirit, seriously. And to actually step forward to try and get involved in some of these things. Test yourself. Where do you think you need to grow spiritually? Again, we're in the season of Lent. This is a season for discernment. When was the last time that you did some sort of direct service? Do you think it's time that you try that again? Have you ever, again, gotten involved in justice work, whether it be through writing your legislators or trying to research an issue of, of public policy or going to talk to legislators or policymakers? Have you been attending the FCC 101 courses? You're welcome to attend them. If you want to get involved in a small group, send me a message and let me know.
The best way for us to move forward spiritually is for you to feel that, that draw within you to want to go deeper. I encourage you to do it. One final note I want to leave you with, though. That is our uh, interesting image on the cover of our bulletin. In the midst of our desire for spiritual renewal, I do want to make note of the fact that uh, in this church, again, much like for for Horace Bushnell, uh, we affirm that uh, our rebirth, our spiritual regeneration, uh, sign and seal of that is, is, is what happens in baptism. So when we baptize children, which we will do uh, next week, and we have several more baptisms coming up, when we baptize children, we are proclaiming that God has loved and redeemed this this child and that God is working through this child and inviting this child uh, into a deeper relationship. We are proclaiming when we baptize infants, moreover, that this is a lifelong journey. This is not something that relies on you uh, making some decision or commitment at some point. But it's the beginning of something of a constant spiritual renewal. So as we do our baptisms in the next week, I invite you to think about that. And I invite you to think how the Spirit is calling you to do more in your lives this Lenten season.